Welcome back to Friends and Neighbors. I'm Benjamin Wagner. The Wagner Brothers documentary, Mr. Rogers and Me, premiered on PBS on March 20th, 2012. This week, we are celebrating that anniversary with a special two-part conversation. It's difficult to remember just how little Chris and I knew when we began shooting our documentary in October 2006. While Mrs. Rogers had given us her blessing, Fred's company hadn't yet signed off. There were precious few sources of information on Fred's life and career outside of his Wikipedia page, obituary, and a few scattered remembrances. And while Chris had cut tons of shows and even a doc or two for television, I didn't know a thing about filmmaking. There was no script, no outline, no roadmap. It was a call to adventure like all, I suppose, loaded with uncertainty, ambiguity, and anxiety, and hope. Hope that we'd get some green lights and that the miles would somehow make sense at some point down the road. Hope that we would emerge transformed. Most days, though, it was all Chris and I could do to just keep going. Today's guests, Amy Hollingsworth, author of The Simple Faith of Mr. Rogers, and Tim Madigan, author of I'm Proud of You, My Friendship with Fred Rogers, were early indications that we were on the right path. Both entered our lives serendipitously, both greeted our project as helpers, and both opened their hearts to us. Both have provided sage and steady guidance in the intervening years. In the first of this two-episode special, Amy and Tim share their calls to adventure and what they came to understand as Fred Rogers' legacy. And we're joined by neighborhood archivist Tim Leibarker, who generously and ably handles hosting duties. It's been a decade and uh, just to, to catch up with everybody and see what the last decade has done for oh the three gosh. of you and, and where we're at now versus where we were 10 years ago. Amy, I feel like you're already going to be like, well, it wasn't really 10. So for the record, it was 10 on PBS and 12. And Amy, we met you and Tim in 2006. I know. That's Does that ridiculous. sound right? Yes. Yes. It was a year after the book came out. Ah, right. And Tim, yours must have come out, what, in 2006 as well? Yeah, it came out in 2006. My timing was fortuitous. Amy and Tim, you guys were the only people who were probing this sort of topic and interrogating the life of Mr. Rogers at that. I mean, I guess you moved really darn quick. It's extraordinary that we met him at around the same time and we both ended up mm-hmm. writing books about him at the same time. I just thought that yeah. was really fascinating. When I was the Johnny come lately thinking in terms of television and video, you guys were already there. With your film and with those those two books, aside from those three things, there, there wasn't a lot out there at that time. I mean, you guys were all kind of ahead of the game before this, this pop culture boom of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. After I went to his memorial service, I came mm. home and I thought, you know, somebody should really... Because in his memorial service, they were very open about his faith. Very, It was like Presbyterian ministers on parade or something. And mm. I just thought, oh, you know, somebody should really write a book about his faith. And I said that to myself during the memorial service, never thinking in a million years that it would be me. 
You know, that's something that had, that was kind of a personal thing that happened when I got home and I was reflecting on Fred's life. And there was just this moment of recognition that maybe that I was the one who was going to do that. Mm. The idea actually came at his memorial service. How, Amy, did you determine that it was you? What pushed you over the edge to actually take that responsibility, as it were? I think I was just being quiet and reflecting, which is something that Fred taught me to do. And I I was just reading over a letter or something he had written about Mama Bell, who was a neighbor. And she had bequeathed something very special to him right before she died, but he, he didn't know she was dying. And he thought later on that maybe she knew she was dying and she did this as she passed this on to him. And I think at that moment, I thought, you know, I think he did that with me. I I think he sent me things and wrote things in his letters and the interviews I did with him that were sort of a legacy. Mm. And maybe he, maybe that was purposeful on his part. So I think that's when I sort of had the recognition that maybe I was the one, although it's not easy. And Tim Madigan, you know, this too, it, you, you have all kinds of doubts about whether you're, the person to do something like this. And so it wasn't an easy thing. I, I felt like it was a commission, but I certainly had a lot of self-doubt along the way up until I wrote like the last sentence. But I think I felt strongly enough that this was something that Fred wanted me to do, that I could be braver and see it through to the end. I'm glad you did. <laughs> mm-hmm. I felt the same way. I felt, I still do. Um, I just reread that quote from the first blog post I published and, and Amy just mentioned an email exchange where you encouraged me to embrace the ambiguity, which is hard to remember just how ambiguous finishing something like that thing was when I met you in particular, Amy, because you were the very first person that Chris and I interviewed <laughs> for the movie. You were the first flight and, you know, you welcomed us with a deli tray and your whole family was there. So we, it was a good feeling. <laughs> um, to know you're alive. It was a good feeling to know that the universe greeted us that way, that you were as a proxy for how the energy was going to be received in the world. But boy, was it terrifying. And it only looks easy now. Right. And, you know, after the book came out that I had a lot of people who reached out to me and asked me to help with Mr. Rogers projects. And I said no to almost everybody. But there was something about you. And I think like an ex-girlfriend or something had given you my book. It was just some kind of weird thing. But yes. I, but I, is that right? See, I'm such, you, I'm such Amy, a, your memory. Yes. <laughs> anyway, she gave you the book and I don't know. I just knew I was supposed to help you. And I rewatched the film yesterday and I started crying three and a half minutes in, <laughs> which I think is a record. And to see our conversation to see the footage for my interviews with Fred. I mean, it was really, it really, really took me back. It was just a great experience. I didn't know that others had inquired and I'm extra grateful that, especially given how little I knew and how kind of guileless I feel like I was or am, (laughs) that you were receptive. I just knew that all was supposed to help and it became more than just the interview, of course. Yes, now I call on you regularly, you and Tim, regularly for for guidance and life advice. (laughs) Now we're friends. Big time. time. (laughs) Tim, how did you, what sort of tipped you into saying, oh, I need to do this? Uh, It was pretty much by accident because after he died, I wrote an essay in the paper I wrote for at the time in Fort Worth about our friendship that was published a couple of day or two after he died. And there was very, obviously very powerful reaction to that. 
but the book just never occurred to me. And one of the reasons mm-hmm. why is that I didn't want to feel like I was trying to uh, cash in on his name and yeah. uh, mm-hmm. do another kind of celebrity. I knew this guy's celebrity type thing. And it was about two years after he died, and I was just rooting around for a, a, another book idea. And my literary agent said, do you have any ideas? And I said, well, I don't know. I, I didn't know Fred Rogers pretty well. And she said, oh, really? So what I ended up doing was that I took that piece that I did for the Fort Worth paper and basically just kind of retooled it into a book proposal and sent it to her. She called me up one night and she was crying. Mm-hmm. And she said, this is going to change your life. It's going to be similar to the piece that I wrote in the paper. It's going to really celebrate him, et cetera, et cetera. And but I needed his permission to print Fred's letters to me. And he said, absolutely not. He said, it's nothing personal, but that, we don't say yes to anyone. That's why there are no Fred, Fred Rogers toothbrushes, no Fred Rogers this, no Fred Rogers mm-hmm. that. They're very, very protective of all that. And basically, I, you know, I was just devastated, but I wouldn't take no for an answer. And the reason I wouldn't was, and this the negotiation went on for a year, is as I know everyone here knows that the second half of the book is about my brother's death and uh, the journey that we took with my brother Steve and his when he was sick with terminal lung cancer. And I wasn't going to let some guy in Pittsburgh tell me whether or not I could tell my story. So I basically kept at him. He finally relented, gave me what I needed. The message of the book was so important because it was a lot about human suffering. Fred taught me that human suffering is not a character defect. It is Mm -hmm. just part of the universal experience of of humanity. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's this uh, Henry Nouwen's quote, what is most personal is most universal. Fred saying anything mentionable is manageable. You know, that kind of put me on a course where basically it allowed me to start having a lot more compassion for myself. Mm-hmm. And so because of, you know, there are problems in my marriage, my brother's death, depression, and basically it's, there's something in there that I think most people can relate to at least part of it. And obviously Fred being Fred and being this almost kind of supernatural presence, people got to see him in relationship I love the documentary, but one of the things that I thought was a weakness of the documentary was that it was mostly in the context of Fred and the program, as I perceived it. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm not not your mm-hmm. documentary, but the later one that came out. And, and oh, there was another one. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right, right, right. That's the thing that we were about Fred Rogers, the human being, and. Mm-hmm. The movie came along, and that's what that was all about, of course. But before people were doing that, he was Mr. Rogers, the TV character. You know, Mm -hmm. Amy's book, my book, your film, was about Fred Rogers, the human being, and basically gave people a glimpse as to what it was like to be in relationship to a person like that. There's a reason, however mysterious it might be, that the three of us were doing this kind of work at the time. Even though it's been a long time, being in a position to talk about Fred at this moment in history is particularly important. Because mm-hmm. I don't know about y'all, but I'm getting 
a lot more interested in Fred Rogers right now. And the question always is, you know, what would Fred Rogers say today? Mm-hmm. I don't know that anybody can really know the answer to it, but the four of us in this conversation are in a position to have an educated guess anyway. Do you guys see any kind of correlation between the, the time frame, like you mentioned, Tim, the fact that you had the book out, Amy had a book out, Ben, your film, all of these came out around the same time. And prior to that time, Fred's image in, in the public eye was was mostly as television show host. And now look at the the image he has in the public of this the celebrated figure. We've all had the experience of running into many people who would say, was he really like that? And my answer to that, of course, would be, yes, not only was he like that, but he was so much more. And in yeah. fact, and in mm-hmm. fact, I don't think in, and it's always been gratifying to me that know that I'm not crazy in thinking that he was one of our civilization's great human beings. And even though you could get a hint of that on TV, I don't think you could really get the full measure of it until you were the beneficiary of that remarkable presence that he embodied. I mean, I think the rest of us strive to be present to one another, but it takes some discipline. He was just presence. To me, that's always been kind of the foundation of this historic greatness of his, I think. When I was watching the rewatching the documentary yesterday, Susan Stanberg talked about the fact that the molecules in the room changed when he walked mm. into the room. And I yeah. think part of what I was trying to do was to see that like that's not a natural human condition. I tr- was trying to get people to see his depth and how he so carefully cultivated the kind of person that he was. There was so much hard work that went into his compassion and his love and his care for people and, you know, getting out of bed at five in the morning and and praying and, you know, remembering people and the times of silence and, you know, all his reading and all the books. And it's like, I remember when I first discovered him, which I didn't grow up with him, but I saw him on TV when my son turned to, and I I saw right away his depth. I, I could see it. And it was mostly a psychological depth that I think I saw, but it wasn't until I met him in person and talked to him about his faith, which my interview with him was the first time he had ever talked about his faith on television. And somebody later, one of his staff said that was his coming out spiritually. You know, that's how that's the phraseology they used. And so I I wanted people to see that he was capable of that depth and maybe more importantly, how he cultivated it. You know, and that was really important to Joanne. She wanted people to know that what he was able to accomplish, we are capable of that as well. Mm -hmm. If if we are able to have the same sort of rituals that he did and the mindset that he did. And and so it is attainable, but it's rare, rare. (laughs) I always feel like I have to step up my game, aim when we're together, because you're poise and your commitment and rigor to showing up as capable as possible is so consistent in my life, not just these things, but whenever we connect that I always feel like a little intimidated by that. (laughs) That's very sweet, Benjamin. (laughs) I'll tell you guys a quick story. Amy was at the Heartland Film Festival with us and we're driving away from like the second screening. And by this point, Amy, you've probably seen it, I don't know, five, six times. (laughs) And she's like, (laughs) 
She's like, I'd like to talk about a few grammar things. <laughs> they still bothered me yesterday. No, the funniest, I'm the, sure. the funniest story is when we were at the museum. It was me, Susan Stanberg, and Maureen Orth. Remember Tim Russert's wife? Yes. And the three of us yes. are sitting in the row. And Benjamin says something like, between him and I. And all three of us go, all <laughs> three of us out loud go, me. me, between mm. him and me. You know, and Christopher was behind us. He was like, all three women at this. They're all writers, all three at the same time. <laughs> Corrected his <laughs> I went to Syracuse and I didn't get into the Newhouse School because I wasn't quite the student they thought I would be. And I had to take a grammar, spelling, and punctuation test to get in and barely, barely, <laughs> barely did pull it off in the end. So it's definitely not my strength, you know. But, but that always felt like such a, a hallmark of any experience around Fred Rogers. And Amy, you were always so clear about pointing that out to me and helping to model it, which is the idea of practice, noticing, being curious, creating ritual in your life. Tim, you and I talked, you did this with the river during the pandemic. You went down to the river in your town and kept shooting these beautiful videos that reminded me to slow down. I tell my girls on the regular, it's mostly like take a deep breath and slow down a little bit. And you guys have both been so great at that for me forever because they ain't my strength. A little spazzy, a little bit. <laughs> a little caffeinated. Oh, what did Fred say about the The very first question I asked him is about why he took his time and he paused, of course, before he answered. And he said, I think for me, I need to be myself. And I've never been a hyperactive run around kind of person. And here I was, <laughs> hyperactive run around kind of person sitting across the table from him, asking him the question. And then he goes on to say, you know, I just thought that the best gift you can give another person is the gift of one more honest adult in that person's life. And then he said, and so for me, being quiet and slow is being myself. And that is my gift. And I think at the time I thought, oh, he's kind of drawing a line between our personalities. Like he's quiet and slow. I'm hyperactive running around. But over the years and Tim, Tim L, you had mentioned this earlier, like how have things changed in the last 10 years or 15 years, or for me, the 25 years since I met Fred. And I think that what I'm realizing is being quiet and slow is not just your personality type. It's the better way. You know what I mean? That, mm. that through probably the most difficult times of my life, what I've learned is that in order to, to go deep, you have to go slow. Mm -hmm. it, whether it's your interior life, whether it's in relationship with people, in order to go deep, you have to go slow. How do you do that, though? I know that's a very, very open-ended question, but how do you go slow when everything around us is so fast? It's discipline. You know, it's taking the time. It's mm -hmm. like today I purposely build as much quiet and silence into my day that I could because that's a lesson that Fred taught me. It's probably the area where I've made the great greatest gains in my life. And it's also probably the area I struggle with the most. For me, it's usually a brick wall that gets me to be quiet and slow, you know, and through very difficult times, I think I've learned to cultivate and see the importance and the fruit of being quiet and slow. I don't think I had any idea how fast particularly in the last few years, how fast I was moving in my mm -hmm. sort of previous life in New York City pre-pandemic until the pandemic stopped me from global travel, right? Until the pandemic stopped us from racing all over 
God's green earth until then I had a bike accident and couldn't ride my bike anymore. And only in the last few months have I finally even stopped running. And it, to me, it's all Amy connected to the intersection between pace mm -hmm. and noticing and curiosity and all the things that I, I feel like I'm only just getting hip to now that I'm in one place able to notice birds and trees. I think a lot of that happened worldwide for right. people when they were shut down, when they were at home. I know for me personally, you know, I, I got a chance to spend more time with my kids and with my family and um, time with myself for that matter. Mm -hmm. So I think it gave people the opportunity to kind of reflect mm -hmm. and and recognize the importance of the slowing down and the importance of the the things that truly are important. My sense is that broadly speaking, the great resignation as it's come to be called, which I think is mm -hmm. a narrow definition of a broader trend around purpose. Mm -hmm. You could only resign if you had the ability to do so, right? So mm -hmm. I've, you have to acknowledge that, that just not everyone could pull that off. But a whole bunch of people, I think, seemed to bump into purpose. When I met Fred, that was my ambivalence was I was like, I don't think what I'm doing with my life is the right thing to do with my life. And I thought I meant it in terms of MTV News. But I now know I meant it across the board mm -hmm. about like how integrated I was going to be. If I've always had a sense of my true north, which I think I have, which is just my best new way of de describing a sense of when I was on the right track or something, right? When I met Fred, what I think I was saying is I really feel like I'm at odds with myself. And I get the sense that as a planet, we're at odds with ourselves and that the deep, profound stuff that we've collectively and individually swept under the rug and tried to numb and race away from and watch popcorn movies, blockbustery things instead of feeling or worse. It's catching up with us. I always thought at the end of Mr. Rogers and me, Benjamin, you were going to just walk out of the MTV building and it was all going to be over. And I was sort of waiting for that. And it's actually happening to you now though, right? Right. That's why we shot that exterior and we shot it from a distance. That's from Chris's office. Interestingly, if you remember, I go, yeah, that music mm -hmm. video channel. And Chris does a crash zoom. It's a really terrible shot because we were so afraid <laughs> that MTV was going to be really mad. I thought they were going to be like, wait, what? And let me go. I screened the movie in the Viacom movie theater, in <laughs> the Paramount movie theater, in 1515 Broadway, the headquarters. Nobody paid any attention whatsoever. But yeah, I thought I was going to walk out at the end of it too. Um, I ended up walking into a different experience, which in a way accelerated all of the things, um, but also gave me, I don't know, I, I hope it's given me other insights and other value, but holy moly, it took a long time to actually step off and go, I think I got to figure this shit out a little more than I, mm -hmm. I think I got to figure this stuff out a little bit more. <laughs> I hope that makes it into the final cut of the interview. I was told that that was Fred Rogers' favorite word. So in honor of him, you should leave it in. <laughs> Fred appreciated how hard it was to be a human being. I've always felt that the message of his show was, I know that it's hard to be three years old and I know it's hard to be 30 years old. And I know it's hard to be 64 years mm -hmm. old, but for one half hour, there's going to be one adult who's going to be here for you and for you alone. We're all seekers. We've all tried to deepen ourselves in various ways. We've all tried to deepen a connection to God and, and to, to live our best lives. But there's no burning bush. 
There's nobody saying, you know, you need to do this now. To be faithful to your path in life, you need to quit MTV and go join an ashram in India. Part of the struggle of being a human is you don't really know. <laughs> you don't really know. You take it a day at a time, and after 10 years, you look back and you say, oh, that's what that was about. Fred would have compassion about that, too. I know one time I told him I hated the newspaper and I wanted to quit and wanted to go to graduate school or something. And he said, well, that's cool. <laughs> you know, <laughs> whatever you need to do, I'm sure it'll be fine. He was so real. He was so kind of in touch. And it would be tempting to kind of dismiss him as being this Pollyannish character on television mm-hmm. until you have an appreciation for the topics he covered in his show. Fred himself was a wounded healer. I don't think anybody who has, has that kind of compassion he did didn't suffer greatly themselves. Mm-hmm. still have my days. But one of the legacies of Fred in my life is that that's okay. That's just the way it is. I'm trying. I'm doing the best I can. What more mm-hmm. can I do? Now, more than ever, addled with pandemic anxiety, heightened by economic uncertainty and amplified by the renewed threat of global war, we're reminded that feelings are real, but they're not in charge. Transformation is possible, but it takes real effort. Confronting our feelings and giving them appropriate expression takes strength, Fred said. Strength to acknowledge our anger, strength to curb the aggressive urges anger may bring and to channel them into nonviolent outlets strength to face our sadness and to grieve and to let our grief and our anger flow in tears when they need to strength to talk about our feelings and to reach out for help and comfort when we need it Friends and Neighbors is an essential industries production in association with Wagner Brothers. Learn more at friendsandneighborshow.com. And please help your friends and neighbors discover our show by sharing, liking, commenting, and rating. Really, it makes a difference. Mr. Rogers and Me is available on Apple TV, Amazon Prime, and PBS DVD. Until next time, it's a good feeling to know we're lifelong friends. <laughs>